I still don't get how you could ever get 12 million points. Yeah, right now I'm at 13,654,081. Oh my God. The one and only Chris Hutchinson. This is the king of credit card points. He is an avid life hacker. If you've learned how to kind of hack life, he's a financial optimizer. And host of the All The Hacks podcast. Who is this man and how did he get millions of points? You're not getting more than two cents of value every time you swipe your credit card, then you're missing out. Is that the real hack for people that don't have unlimited spending? You just gotta open a bunch of credit cards? In short, yes. A card I really like is the Capital One Venture. I wish I could have 20 of these cards. I would make, I make money every year I have them. Where do you think you can use those points that will take you the furthest? I'll tell you the worst. Well, the worst is... Hi, Chris. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah. You can see the bags under my eyes because um, I stayed up pretty much past four looking into your credit card optimizations, all of the videos you have around optimizing your credit card points. So I'm super like fascinated by this, mainly because I don't know if you've ever had an experience, maybe outside of like finance, where you, these are things that you didn't know you didn't know and you feel like you discovered it so late in your life. So like for me, it was like I was so tired in my early 20s and I realized like I was eating too many carbs. And I was like, oh my God, it was like such a mind-blowing like thing because like, you don't really learn about nutrition in high school and university. And uh, I just started doing intermittent fasting and like that was like such a pivotal point. And I feel like these credit card optimizations and points and all of these life hacks that you have in your podcast, they're very fascinating. And, and I think the audience is going to really enjoy this stuff. So I, I guess I want to dig into like kind of your mindset behind this, which is like, when did you get started around this, this, this path, I guess, in general around like credit card optimization points? Is this mindset something that you've always been having around like finding different alternatives to traditional paths that pe people haven't really taken? Yeah, I would say yes. Like I've always thought there's probably a better way. And I, I guess I'd attribute it to two big things in my life. One, travel. And the benefit of travel, there's a lot of them. But one is you go to other countries, you go visit people in other cultures, and you realize that people around the world are doing the same thing. They're living life but they're doing it in very different ways. And other people are much happier doing it uh, in certain parts of their life. And so it just kind of opened my eyes to, to this attitude of, if someone tells me something, I don't just take it for face value. I assume maybe they're wrong and maybe there's a better way. Uh, my default, my whole life, much to the disappointment of my teachers, was like, if you say something, I don't just assume that you're correct. And so uh, oh, you're my, that all student. the time in school, <laughs> All the time in school, a teacher would say something and like everyone in the school class is like, oh, of course, the teacher said it. And I'm like, it means like you come with no guarantee that what you say means anything unless yeah. you can prove to me that you're truly a deep, deep expert. And I'm going to push back and, and, you know, challenge everything. 
and my parents, my teachers, everything. It was, it, you know, it made for some frustrating conversations, especially between my parents and the teachers. That was part one. And then the other was just, there was a couple moments where I grew up in kind of an upper middle class suburb and went to boarding school. But a lot of the people around me, even though by no means did I grow up, you know, without access to wonderful things, my parents didn't give me their credit card, right? Like I didn't have unlimited source of money, but a lot of the kids I went to school with did. And so I just kind of had to learn to get creative to kind of, it was like keeping up with the Joneses, but in high school. Mm -hmm. And uh, some people, I, I didn't have any money to do it with, or I had money, but I didn't have as much. And so if kids at school were ordering pizza after, you know, study hall was what we did, you know, like set at 9.30 to 10 was like this evening hour at school in high school, you could do whatever you want. Everyone's ordering pizza, but I didn't have the budget to order pizza. But then I started just ordering pizzas and selling slices so that I could consume the the profit. I just ate the profit. Like it wasn't it wasn't me trying to make money. Uh, it was me trying to get free pizza. So I think trying to be resourceful because I was a little bit forced to in that circumstance and just always believing there is a better way or another way that could be better has led me to constantly be looking for the better way, but without making the sacrifice, right? Like you talk about yes. health. If you want to save money on food, you can eat beans and rice. Like it will be cheaper than almost anything else you're eating. But it doesn't mean that's like it's flavorful and exciting and you want to eat that. There is probably a way to achieve a lot of the outcomes you want without having to make as big a sacrifice as you might think as long as you get creative. Yeah, it's not just trying to find the alternative way. You're not being a hipster here, right? You're not trying to be the different person in the crowd just for the sake of being different. You're actually trying to find something that can get to the a better result maybe, but just at a easier shortcut. Yes, although I will say if I own a t-shirt, like a, a shirt, and it's not just a white t-shirt, but if I like go buy a shirt with some kind of cool design on it or something, and then I see another person with it, I'm like, yeah. I never want to wear that shirt again. I do want the thing that's like a little contrarian uh, yeah. in my life. Like I love going to a dinner party or meeting friends and being like, I'm doing a thing differently than you are. Like right. I, I do get a little deep satisfaction having found the the other the other way to do it. I do enjoy that. But yeah. usually the other is also either faster or cheaper or more enjoyable or something. Yeah, I, I, I struggled a lot with that actually growing up in high school and, and college because I was born in Korea. So it's a very homogenous culture where everybody has to be united. You kind of have to follow the certain rules and it's very constricted in a lot of ways. And that's the way I grew up in my family as well. So naturally, I, I do think a lot like yourself as well, thinking about different ways of living a life or different ways of doing things. And you realize only until later on that that's actually a valuable skill to have when yeah. you're not being made fun of by your friends or you're being you know, construed by your, fa your parents. And uh, it's, it's kind of a lesson you learn later on that it's actually, it is a lot better to just think differently and to stand out and find a different yeah, path. A perfect example of this to, to bring it back to Korean culture is when my wife and I had our first child, we were trying to figure out how do you just manage having a child? Like it is a crazy experience um, based on the fact that you stayed up till 4 a.m. I'm assuming you don't have children. Otherwise, you wouldn't have bags <laughs> in your eyes. You'd be sound asleep. I was just uh, trying to be different. You would, have woken up, you would have gotten two hours of sleep. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but we were looking and a lot of people invite their in-law to come live in their house, like their, their mother-in-law or, or their their parents. Some people hire a doula or you know, some people just deal with it themselves. It just depends. There's night nannies, all this stuff. And we had learned from some Korean friends of ours that like in Korean culture, 
there is a person that usually comes to your house for 30 days. It could be a family member, but it might not be. And they live with you for 30 days. And their responsibility is actually on the mom, not on the baby. And in order to take care of the mom, they have to take care of the baby. Otherwise, mom would be so stressed out. But mom needs to recover. And so part of the responsibilities of this person are making nourishing meals, taking care of the baby, giving mom massages and all this stuff. And so when we looked at all these options after we had our first child, we were like, what this Korean thing and is also common in Chinese and Taiwanese culture. But, you know, we associated most with Korean culture and loved Korean food. So we hired this woman who spoke very little English, who lived in L.A., who is a Korean grandma or auntie. Uh, like a Korean Ajima, if you speak Korean, like, and this person lived with us for 30 days after we had a baby, she cooked all the meals. And it was a totally different experience. And since then, I've told lots of people, and we've had like seven friends hire this exact same woman to come live with them after they had their babies. And before talking to us, it wasn't even on their radar, like it wasn't even an option. And even better, it turns out that it's actually so much more affordable than a lot of the Americanized versions of having a, a, you know, a night nanny or anything like that. It was much cheaper. Uh, once the secret gets out, they'll have to charge more. But until then, it's a great hack. What's different about it? What, what is it about the Korean ajuma? It, it sounds like it's like a maid, no? It's like they're cooking for you or they're doing the dishes. But what is different well, about it? Well, she's taking care of the baby. She sleeps yeah. in the baby's room. If the baby wakes up in the middle of the night... Um, you know, depending on whether you're and not to go too far down the kids thing, but it's like if you're breastfeeding, obviously you have to do that. If you're bottle feeding, she'll feed the baby in the middle of the night so mom can get some sleep. Uh, it's it's someone to basically. T- and by the way, when you have a baby, you have no idea what you're doing. And she's done this a thousand times. Yeah. So like the first time you bathe your baby, you're like, I don't know how I'm supposed to bathe the baby. She knows how to bathe, like she knows how to do all the things uh, because she's seen this a lot. So it's almost like having an expert who lives in your house who's also going to cook meals, but not just any meals. Like we had so much seaweed soup the first week because it's like a warm, (laughs) nourishing thing. By the end, we're eating, you know, every Korean delicacy you can imagine. And uh, it it was awesome. We made, our fridge had kimchi for, you know, almost six months after that because we made so much kimchi the last week so that we could hang on to a lot of it. But, uh, so it's just a different experience. I'm not saying it's for everyone, but, if you didn't take the time to understand how other cultures han- handle this period of time, you might think that your only option is to do it on your own or spend, you know, almost $1,000 a day or $500 a day for someone to help around the clock or to order a chef to deliver meals. Like it, it, the total cost to deliver the experience we got was probably three to five times the price mm. had we tried to do it with you know, the average services that most of our peers would have used. Um, and I think a less interesting experience. Like we are very immersed in, you know, Korean culture for 30 days. And uh, my daughter is now very capable of, of greeting anyone. Like, you know, it's like have a cool experience. Does she do the whole bowing thing as well? Or? A little bit. I mean, she's only three now. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're working on it. That's good timing. I'm, I'm actually going to Korea next week. I'm for two months. So yeah. jealous. Pretty excited Between, about it. Between like the food, the Korean uh, bathhouses, Jim Jobong, like uh, yeah. Korea is an amazing place. If people haven't been and you're listening to this, at least go eat some food. And if not, take a trip. 
Yeah, I, w- I want to talk about some other hacks that you have because I think the mindset, you talk a lot about credit card points, which we're going to get into travel and stuff like that. But that mindset certainly has to apply, which this is a great example. Like for one that I have just recently found is the whole thing is now cold plunges, right? Everybody's talking about getting a cold plunge at their house and everything. And I travel so much that like I'm not going to spend $2,000, $3,000 for a cold plunge and then just move somewhere else or carry the cold plunge with me wherever I go. So a lot of my friends, what they've been doing is they buy this mini freezer and it's like $100. I'm living in Medellin, Colombia right now. So it's like $100 in, in, in pesos. And they just like bring it in the house. And cold water is cold water at the end of the day. And to me, that was like such a, a, a hack because I've always wanted a cold plunge, but I just I just travel so much and it's so hard to get one. And uh, that's for sure one thing that I'm going to start to do now. And uh, it's pretty much the same experience at the end of the day. It takes a little bit more time to clean. But, you know, other than that, it's 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 like a big health hack that I found. I don't know if you're into cold yeah. plunges. I have a cold plunge. Um, there's also a couple of other like if you if you're willing to just use ice, there are all kinds of portable cold plunges that's like fill with water, throw ice in. Um, they can be cheaper also, depending on how easy it is to get ice. Uh, you could put a Yeti cooler next to it, probably have yeah. ice stay cold for three or four days, you got your cold plunge. So I think my general approach is like, do a little more research. I find so many people when they're thinking about trying to make a decision or trying to find something or trying to solve a problem, it's like, oh, well, most people solve the problem like this. So maybe I should solve the problem like this. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa first, maybe the way most people solve the problem is wrong. Like if I had asked a hundred friends the best option after you have a baby for help, they would have all not said hire a Korean Ajima to live with you. Like no one would have said that. (laughs) So sometimes you have to go put the the research into your own hands and go say, well, how do other people do this? What are other options? What do people say on Reddit? What do people say in random Facebook groups? Uh, And I think just doing that little bit of extra research, which I've found a way to both be enjoyable and exciting and fun leads to these outcomes uh, that are amazing. And I don't know, I'm actually working on a book about this whole process and like, what Mm. is my process to find better outcomes? Or I don't have a working title yet, but it's like, if you want to optimize something or get a better outcome or make a better decision, what steps do you need to go through to make sure that you end up with the most optimal outcome? And yeah, I don't know. Can you talk about some of that? Because I, I, I spoke with um, Stephen Wolfram, who's like a brilliant physicist, mathematician. And he, for him, thinking in first principles is such a natural thing. And I, you know, people often say like, you just want to ask why, like five times, and you'll kind of get to the root of what the essence of a question or a certain belief that you have is. But for you, when you're thinking about these different hacks, it can get exhausting to a certain extent, right? If you're questioning every single thing that you're that you're being told or, or, or statement or fact, you know, we just can't live life efficiently if we're constantly questioning everything. So what is like a framework that is maybe easy for you to follow where you can still take care of the baby, you can still live your life and still enjoy without questioning every single thing? Is there a simple way that you can that you can explain? I mean, yes, and I'm writing a book about it. So uh, let me give you the the synopsis, kind of yeah. rough early version, and then wait two years, and hopefully there'll be the full version. Yeah. Um, so one is like I like to say all the conventional wisdom. It probably sucks. 
go experience lots of things in life. So you get used to questioning whether the most obvious answer is the right answer. Sometimes it is. Um, and, and to jump to the, to the end of this process, I think one challenge I've had a lot in my life is thinking that like the analysis side of your brain is going to make a decision and not realizing that the emotional side of your brain is probably going to make a decision or emotional side of your body or whatever. So I often describe the way I made decisions as I collect all the information I put in a black box and then my gut picks what's the right, right answer. And I've slowly realized that if I step away from the process, I can often make the decision like much easier. And I'm training myself over time to take into account how important the decision is, how reversible the decision is, like understanding kind of pattern recognizing what's happened in the past to be more confident making that decision early. So, you know, while my process might be, okay, forget what other people say. The second one is actually a lot about what you said. It's like question what you want, ask yourself those five whys, because you might think, oh, I, I, I need to work. I need to find a job where I make more money. Why? Because I want to be able to retire early. Why? Because I want to start a family and I want to be able to spend more time with my kids. And, uh, and if I can work for the next 15 years, then by the time my kids are in high school, like I'll have saved up enough money to stop working. Okay. But like, what if you just found a job where you could work four days a week? You know, you don't have to stop working when you're 40 and then you have more free time to hang out with your kids now, you know, like question what you want. Because sometimes you might think, oh, it's about money. And really, it's actually about spending time with someone or whatever it is. At each one of these steps, pause and say, okay, well, now that I realize what I really want, before I try to go do more research and, and information gathering, can I make the decision now? Like, can I pick the outcome? Uh, and, and then it's, okay, it, how important is it? How reversible it is? All those things. I'm, you know, big fan of the 80-20 rule, right? Like if you've, yep. you you could probably get a lot of the benefit without going all the way down the rabbit hole. Uh, I'm also a big fan of outsourcing decisions. So if I have a friend who's like a total export expert in a thing, just call them and ask them. Mm. Um, but it doesn't even always have to be uh, uh, someone you know. We wanted to get an air conditioning system. So in the Bay Area, not every house has air conditioning, and but it's getting hot all the time now. And so we want an air conditioner and we had an air conditioner guy come in great reviews. And he gave us this really, really expensive quote. And we were like, we're not going to do that. That's just too much. <laughs> we had a few other people come in and they all proposed some version of a solution that seemed like it was not perfect, but much less expensive. And I was like, I don't know how to decide. Like, one person's like, we'll build the air conditioner, but we'll build it sideways so it fits in this room. And another person says, we're going to modify it in this way. And I was like, all of these sound good, but I'm not an expert. So my next step might be go do the research and become the expert. However, I just called that first guy and said, hey, I really appreciate you. You know, your quote was too high. We're not going to be able to afford it. If anyone ever comes to me and asks who the best is when it comes to this job, and I'm going to send them your way because I would love to hire you but it's out of my price range. I can't do it. I have these three guys that are all lower. They're offering to make these three different types of modifications. Are any of those reasonable? And he was like, yeah, definitely go with person B. Like if you're going to do something that's less expensive, I don't like doing any of the shortcuts. That's not the way we do it. But if you do go with this person, easy. Like that guy's the expert. Like I, I, it's not a best friend of mine. In fact, right. I was surprised he even gave me advice because I told him I wasn't going to work with him. 
but uh, he did. And so if you have a friend or even a professional you can outsource your decision to, uh, you can save yourself a ton of research. And then you, if not, you can research yourself. And I have a ton of thoughts on collecting and synthesizing information. But at even when you're going through that process, pausing and saying, wait, 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 can I maybe walk outside for five minutes and be like, can I decide now? And so most recently, I've been trying to decide about getting off Verizon. So we have Verizon cell phone plan. <laughs> It's so expensive. They just changed their plans. Now they're more expensive. There's a new tax or a fee that they emailed me about. I'm like, we got to get off. And I was like, my instinct is go do all the research on every plan of every carrier in America and figure it all out. And I paused and I said, do I have a sense of what I'm going to do? And I was like, yeah, I think I'm just going to go to T-Mobile. And I was like, is this really reversible? Yeah. Like if I don't like T-Mobile, I can switch next month and it's not a big deal. Like, is there a really high cost? No, like it's actually, I'm going to save the sooner I make the decision, the less I, the sooner I stop paying Verizon more money. Mm. So I was like, let's just switch to T-Mobile. Like I don't need to go research and evaluate every plan. Um, Funny enough, a few days later, someone emailed me a listener and they're like, I really love to know how to pick cell phone plans. And I was like, oh, this will make a good episode. So I did end up doing all the research and I went way down every rabbit hole. And uh, at the end of the day, the answer was like, if you really want a plan that works internationally, it's T-Mobile or Google Fi. And if you don't need that or you're willing to just get a local SIM card, get Mint Mobile. Like that was the answer after a lot of research. Yeah. But personally, I didn't need to do all the research. I've learned to check in with myself, ask myself how reversible and important this is. And if not, just make the decision with a very limited amount of information. Yeah, so you mentioned the reversible thing and you kind of passed by it, but I think that was super important because uh, I don't know if this is from like the, the the Bezos framework of like type one decisions, type two decisions, where if you said if it's irreversible, like you really want to think about it versus if it is reversible, it is a good idea in general to focus on speed and execution rather than trying to mold over the best potential options. So is that the way you're thinking about it is is that's a question you ask yourself. It's like, is this reversible? Absolutely. Yeah. It's it's not. So I ask, how important is it? Like, what's the magnitude of this decision? Um, you know, how reversible is it? And how much risk is there? Um, those are kind of some of the questions. But if you figure, I'm going to buy a house, right? It, reversible, yes. If you don't like the house, you can sell the house. But like, the magnitude of the decision is like, we're going to put in many, for many people, like, a majority of our savings into this house. And, and I guess co- risk is probably also, you could say, as cost. What is the cost? Well, right. yes, it's reversible to sell your house, but you're going to pay 6% in closing cost. You're going to pay like 6% to an agent to sell uh, that splits it across agents. You're going to have some closing costs. So you're going to lose like 8% at least uh, when you turn around and sell your house, not to mention all the closing, the staging, yeah. like time. So very reversible. You buy a house, you can absolutely sell it. There's a fairly liquid marketplace. But it's a really big decision. And there's a financial risk to getting it wrong. That you know, if you had $100 million, and you're talking about buying a small apartment for your kid, and it's a condo, and it costs 100 grand, maybe it's so reversible to you that you don't need to think about it. I don't have $100 million. Uh, so when we bought our house, it was like a meaningful portion of our net worth. And so sure, sure. I thought about it a lot farther, even though it was reversible. So I think the reversibility is really important. But there are some decisions that 
despite their reversibility are really important or have a financial cost if you get wrong. Uh, so I think they're worth evaluating on a few other criterias. But in general, if it's reversible and it's not doesn't have a lot of risk and the magnitude of it is not high, like just make the decision. Spend your mental capacity on other aspects of your life. Yeah, there, there's so many different... For I love talking about this stuff, by the way, because... Yeah, obviously the decisions that you make really impact what decision, what what path you go to. And one thing that I've recently learned, have you heard of the um, 37% rule? No. This particular framework is really useful when you have a lot of different options. So let's say you have like a hundred different options. So the, the this is like something that was popularized by mathematicians and they use it as if you have like a hundred options, you can go through the first 37 and pretty much discard the first 37, but use the best one amongst 37 as a benchmark. And anything after 37, you can basically assume statistically that is going to be the best option if you're applying like the 80-20 rule. So if you have like 100 listings of houses that you're going to see, instead of seeing all 100, which is going to take ages, see 37, which is like a third, and then choose the best out of the 37. And then the 38th one or the 39th one or the 40th one, if that beats that first one out of the 37, then that's generally going to be a better option for you. I, I don't know it's if I've really heard this rule. You have, not, yeah. But it's always been in the form of hiring. It was like mm. interview five to 10 people and yeah. hire the first person that's better than the best from the first group. Um, right. So like interview five people, find out who you like the most, then keep interviewing till someone beats that person. Right. So it's like a similar twist on it. Um, though anyone who's ever been in charge of hiring, like if you really like that person in that first five, it's going to be really hard to say no in the hopes that you find someone else in the future that's better. So yeah. I'm not, I think that it's easier to explain that rule. But if you go through 37 and one's really great, do you really go look at the rest to find the one that's better than that one? Or do you just, pull the trigger on that one that that was the key thing it was it was mathematicians that popularized this right because for them it's so easy to just talk about this in theory but to actually apply it in different settings yeah it's it's really case by case like your example there but um i want to shift a little bit about really the the thing that i was staying up till 4 a.m for which is this journey that you've been on to get 12 million points and you've obviously applied this level of thinking of of thinking differently and and hacking different things to credit card points. I've actually never heard of anyone that I've gotten this far. I mean, I've, I've spoken with uh, Chris Grillabo, who's traveled to every, every country in the world. I don't even think he's gotten to this point. So you've done something very different, obviously. So walk me through like when this journey started for you. And yeah, maybe we can start there. Yeah, so it's tough to totally point pinpoint this. I have a great picture of me flying uh, like I think I'm flying first class in uh, a Concorde at one year old because my dad used points for a trip for the family trip to London. So like in many ways, like I was part of this journey before I even knew it. Uh, but I wouldn't say my dad, my dad traveled a lot for business, had a lot of miles and points and used them for family trips in a world where points and miles were a little easier to use. And I don't think he ever took it to the extreme I have, which, you know, you could maybe argue is a better decision. Uh, you know, like there, there are certainly people that would say I'm past the 80-20 on this. But where it all kind of started for me personally 
was uh, I remember a trip that I really wanted to take in college that a bunch of people were going to Mexico. And I was like, I can't, I didn't have the money to go on this trip. But I remember I'd opened like an American Airlines credit card and I had enough points from that card to go on the, to get my ticket for free. And I was like, oh, this is how this works. You get points and you can go do these things that you otherwise couldn't afford to do. And I was like, let's just keep getting more points because the, if, mm. I, if I just collect an unlimited number of points, then I can always go on whatever trip I want to. And I, I also, if you go through someone's kind of aspirational budget, which I don't think a lot of people have ever built, uh, and, and it's not a concept I'm advocating for. In fact, I don't think I've ever even talked about it until this moment. But I feel like if a lot of people said, here's how I would spend money if I had a lot of money, travel, especially for people in their 20s and 30s, like it's like a big piece of it. And But it's super expensive. And so if you can find a way to take the experience you want and do it for less, which doesn't have to just be by points, we could talk about all kinds of travel hacking. But a really, really big way to do that is to earn points and use those points to go on these adventures. An alternative, yes, you could also just earn cash back and buy your tickets. I would argue that like doing either is better than using a debit card. Mm. And doing any is worse than carrying a balance. So like, if you're not paying your credit cards off in full, stop, go listen to the first half of this, go listen to another podcast, like skip ahead to something after this, like that is priority one. But if you are paying your credit cards off in full, or you're not carrying a balance, uh, you know, using a credit card where, you know, uh, every time it's swiped, the credit card issuer, among other people are making anywhere from, you know, two to three and a half percent on that transaction. You can either get that back in the form of points or cash back, or you can use a debit card, or you can you know use cash and not get it back. Um, and and just to be technical, when you swipe your debit card, it's actually not costing the merchant as much. So you know if you're shopping at a local business and you're paying cash or using a debit card, they're making more money. So you could decide that for some transactions, it's just not worth using a credit card because you want to help the business out. But if you're buying from a massive corporation where you know you're not too worried about that, yeah, using your credit card over your debit card and using the right credit card and you know finding out, figuring out how to use those points the most effective ways could result in anything from I would say at the most extreme like fifty percent back on purchases, but probably at the most conservative like three to five percent back on purchases. Yeah, so. That makes sense, but I'm still I still don't get how you could ever get 12 billion points. Like I sign up for a Chase credit card, and you get 100,000 bonus points. But yeah. there's obviously the the 524 rule. If people don't know, it's like if you apply for five or more credit cards in the past 24 months, so it's five in 24, then it's like an unofficial rule where you may not get approved by by the banks. Um, but to keep yeah, but but that's a Chase rule, right? So you could apply for five Chase cards and then go apply for five Citibank cards and then go apply for five Bank of America credit cards and then apply for five, you know, like just to be clear, that's one rule. And so if you by by accident are trying to play this game and you open up two Capital One, two Amex and a Bank of America card, you're out of luck on Chase. But if you go Chase first, you could open up five Chase cards and then open up the other ones. And there's this great, there's a couple of people who have been kind of visualizing this process. Lots of people have been playing it, but I watched this process of um, someone who he and his partner 
opened up over the course. I'm looking at this chart. I'll send a link to the tweet yeah. you can put in the show notes. They opened up somewhere on the order of like 30 credit cards uh, over the course of 18 months uh, between him and his partner. By the way, first off, their credit scores improved. Both of their credit scores improved over that entire period. And by opening up about 30 credit cards, you know, they ended up collecting at least a million points, if not more. So wow. um, if you look at the points and keep in mind, I'm, I'm, I'm 39 years old, so I've got years under my belt. And also keep in mind, like, I'm not proud of having lots of points because that just means I'm not able to use them. Uh, in a perfect world, I wish I had no points because I figured out how to both accumulate and use them. You're saying you have 12 uh, million think, points that you haven't used yet. It's not that you've Yeah, I think we're probably right around there. Uh, so you probably accumulate the way once more. Once we have kids, it's like travel isn't as exciting as you'd think. I think on the flip side, two, three years from now, we're going to have kids. Travel will not be as stressful. And now every time we fly, we're going to need four tickets instead of two. Hmm. I feel like you're going to see a steep decline on our points balances uh, in about three to four years. So but, if, you, if you have 12 million now, how much do you think you've actually accumulated? I mean, it must be. I don't know that answer. I would yeah. say it's got to be in the 15 to 20 range. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that's the number you should use to to like talk about. Yeah, it, I wish I could figure it. I mean, I guess I could go back through all my emails of all my redemptions yeah. and try to like tally them up and be like, what are the total number of points I've used? You know, there's only a handful of airlines I've done it on. So I could probably get to a number uh, pretty reasonably. Look at like all the transfers I've done from Amex and Chase and all the United points. Yeah, it's probably somewhere around. It's somewhere under 20, I'd imagine. Yeah, because I think most people listening to this would have thought you've accumulated, I mean, which is crazy. <laughs> it's even crazier that like you have 12 billion points. But yeah, right now I'm at 13,654,081. Oh my God. Okay, so to go back, is that the real hack for people that don't have unlimited spending where, you know, just by spending, they're going to be able to get these points because one credit card you know offers three times whatever. Is it just opening... But is that like the 80-20 of it? You just got to open a bunch of credit cards that... I think early on, yeah. when you don't have a lot of expenses, that I mean, that's the only way to accumulate massive bonus, massive amounts of points, right? Like if you don't spend... The, the highest multiple on almost any card is like five points per dollar, right? So if you, know, if you want 100,000 points, you're going to have to spend 20 grand to get 100,000 points, or there might be a credit card that has a $100,000 point sign-up bonus for spending $4,000. Yeah. And so like the return on that is going to be such a higher and better return. Um, so sh in short, yes, but there's, you know, there's only so many cards. If you have a partner, you can play, we, we all often call a player two in the industry. It's like, you've got two times as many people. But there are other things, right? If you become the expert and you're helping all your friends do this, well, maybe they'll use your referral links. Um, you know, if anyone goes to allthehacks.com slash cards, you can use a lot of my referral links if you mm. don't have a friend. Uh, and, and so that's another avenue to earn points is, you know, if you become the pro, be like, hey, let me teach my friends how to do this and send them my referral links. A lot of people end up, you know, there are some people I know who've like started businesses don't even care if the business makes money, but because the business runs uh, dollars through it. So this person messaged me the other day and I was looking at their Twitter to try to understand them. And they have a business that spits off like, or not spits off, but has $5 million a month uh, or a year. I can't remember, but it doesn't really matter. 
$5 million a month or year of credit card transactions. Wow. The business doesn't make $5 million. It was yeah. like some Amazon fulfillment thing where they're basically all the expenses are on buying products and paying for shipping costs. And, and the business doesn't lose money, but they, they can earn, I can't remember, I wish I knew if it was month or year, but even if it's just year, 5 million points a year, but if it's five, $5 million and you put it on even a card that just earns two points, that's 10 million points a year. So it's like 100,000, right? What? That's like 100,000 equivalent, like a penny. Uh, point. 10 million points. I'd say on average, probably one to two cents a point. So I think two cents is like a really good redemption value. Yeah. And to be clear, there's two buckets of points broadly. You can earn points with a hotel group or an airline, or you can earn points uh, with a financial institution like Chase, Amex, Built, uh, Capital One, City. Those points, I personally think are a lot more valuable because they all have all these transfer partners. So if you have mm. a Chase point, you can use it by transferring it to United and booking a United flight or on any of United partners. Or you could transfer it to Hyatt and book a Hyatt hotel room. Or you can transfer it to British Airways and book on British Airways or any of their partners. And so because you get a lot of flexibility, the points end up being worth more because if you could use it in 25 different ways, it's a higher likelihood chance that you're going to get that really great value. Yeah. So, you know, this person is, is raking in points every year. Like they're going to, they're going to have 13 million points in like two and a half years. Like this for me is like multi, over a deck, probably two decades of accumulation and some spending. Um, but if you're just getting started, yeah, sign up bonuses is great. Uh, I, in my day, I've done all kinds of stuff. I've thrown, I've helped organize multiple trips for people that, for trips I'm not going on. Um, what do you mean? You know, I've offered, especially for people who have a lot more money than me. Someone was like, oh, I'm trying to figure out the best flights to Europe. And I was like, I will plan your entire travel as long as I can book it on my card. And then you can just reimburse me. Um, and so if you get a card like the Amex Platinum that earns five points per dollar on travel and you find a really wealthy person who's buying two or three business class trick tickets to Europe, maybe those tickets are $8,000, right? Like three of them right. times, that's like 100,000 points right there. For And, and you know, they don't even view it as necessarily, you know, giving you anything because they're, you're like, I just want to earn some points. They get a free travel agent. You can go do all the research. Um, that's almost anytime a business. A bachelor, do you yeah, think anytime a, a bachelor business? party happened, yeah. I was like, I will plan it. I will plan it. I'll book all the hotels. I'll book all the flights for everyone. I'll get all the points and that'll be my kind of compensation for doing all the work. Uh, but yes, it very much helps if you have a company that generates revenue or sorry, generates transaction spend, whether it's in advertising or somewhere else. Yes, that helps a lot. Or if if you're a management consultant and you have to travel all around the world all the time and you're booking hotel rooms and flights uh, and you can put all of those expenses on your credit card, also great. The pushback I have with that though, if, if that's for a, a person to get started that doesn't have a crazy amount of expenses and the way to get that and to hack that is to open up new credit cards, is these credit cards have annual fees, right? So it could be anywhere from like $100 to $300, let's say. So if you have 10 credit cards that you have to open, does the points that you get, is that is that the idea? The points that you get will, will be a higher revenue generating income versus the annual fees that you would have to pay? Because if you cancel the fees or the credit cards, that takes a hit on your credit as well. Yeah, I mean... I 
ultimately, I don't think it takes as big of a hit as most people think. Um, and I would say a lot of cards can be downgraded to a free version. So you could open up the Hilton Aspire card, which I think is a really awesome credit card. Um, you know, you get way more value than the cost of the card just by opening it. I think it's, mm. I don't know what the exact offer is today, but let's assume it's, I think it's probably, a, it's over 100,000 points. Um, and you get a free night at any Hilton. And you get airline credits every year. I think it's 150,000 points. And you get credits when you stay at a Hilton. But it's a $450 a year card. But if after a year, you're like, it's not worth it, you could downgrade it to a free Hilton card with no annual fee. You can keep that card open. You can keep it on your credit report. Um, you can use it when you stay at Hilton's. Uh, so I think for a lot of cards, if you open something up, if you opened up a Chase Sapphire Reserve and you were like, I'm not using this anymore, you could downgrade it to a Freedom Flex or a Freedom Unlimited card, both of which have no annual fee. Mm. So I think one option is you can downgrade your cards to no annual fee versions. Uh, another option is, yes, you could wait and cancel the card after a year. A lot of card companies they kind of look at your first 365 days to kind of evaluate you as a customer. So I would not cancel it before that. But if you cancel it in that 11, in that 13th month, after you've gotten your second annual fee, but before you've paid it on the statement, usually you'll get that annual fee back. Um, but you can also email them and say, hey, the annual fee is pretty high this year. Uh, you know, is there anything you could do? And sometimes they'll waive it. Sometimes they'll say, spend another $2,000 and we'll give you 30,000 points. You know, there's all these retention offers. Huh. Um, but in general, I think if you don't use the card in an optimal way, sometimes that annual fee is, you know, not, not great. But a card I really like for people getting started is the Capital One Venture X. It's two points per dollar on everything. Um, the points are really flexible. But yes, it does have an annual fee. But I think if you look at the price of the annual fee and you compare it to the benefits of the card, you can ask yourself whether it's actually going to cost you anything. So you, I think it's $395, but you get $300 towards any travel. You log into the Capital One portal, you book a flight, you book a hotel, you get your first $300 back. Per so, year. okay, not, not now, like... If you travel at all, you can get that $300 back. Then on top of that, you get 10,000 miles a year free, which if you're using them optimally is anywhere from like $100 to $200 or more. And so you're like, well, I'm going to pay $395 for the card. I'm going to get $300 back each year. I'm going to get points that are worth between $100 and $200. Like, is the does the annual fee matter? Right. Um uh, so I do all my budgeting and spending tracking on an app called Copilot. It's my favorite. Uh, if you're not an iOS or Mac user, it's only for those platforms. So I'm sorry. Uh, but if you are, definitely check it out. And when you're using Copilot, I just take any of these fees or any of these credits. So book a flight for $300, categorize it as travel. Capital One reimburses me on the $300 because I have a VentureX card. And I categorize that as fees. So if I look at the line item budget on mine, because I have like 15 different credit cards, many with hundred plus dollar fees, because I'm putting in all these credits and all these, you know, redempt offers in there, it drops it drastically. And I'm not spending as much as you might think. Right. So I think right. at first glance, you're like, wow, the Hilton Aspire card is $450 a year. That's crazy. But we got one free night at a hotel 
every year we get one free night, but we did it at a hotel that was like $700. Then we got $200 in like property credit at the hotel while we were staying there. And then on top of that, we got a, I think it was $250 airline credit back on a bunch of expenses we had on airlines. So like that's over a thousand dollars already. So for me, every, every, I wish I could have 20 of these cards. I would make, I make money every year I have one. True. So if you use it optimally, great. If you don't downgrade it, get a retention offer, cancel it. Totally fine. So downgrading is, doesn't count as a cancel though, right? It's as long as it's within the same, like Hilton to Hilton or Capital One to Capital One. Right, right. Yeah, that's a great point. That's a great point. So Capital One, Venture X, those are, those are great credit cards. Hilton, what are some other credit, credit credit cards that you recommend? For people yeah, I mean, I, I built this spreadsheet, which for anyone who wants to go really deep down this rabbit hole, you can go to allthehacks.com slash card value. And I set the price at as whatever you want to pay. If you want to pay a dollar, if you want to pay more, if you, you decide. And you can go in and just look at all the kind of most popular cards, put in how you spend your money and check them off. And it'll tell you these are the more optimal cards. For the average person that spends money like the... Bureau of Labor Statistics kind of consumer expenditure survey reports people do. Um, the Capital One Venture X paired with the Amex Gold is like the best combo because the Gold is 4X on dining and groceries and the Venture X is 2X on everything else. Right. Um, I think that's like a very strong combo for many people. But I will caveat all this with you're still probably going to earn, like even if you spent optimally on those two cards, if you're only spending $20,000 a year, you're probably going to earn somewhere around 50, 60,000 points. Just opening up the Venture X is 75,000 points. (laughs) Assuming you can meet their minimum spend requirements, which are spending $4,000 in the first three months. Mm. So, you know, you've got to ask yourself, like, how much do I want to play the game of opening up cards to get bonuses, which is going to be a much higher return on spend than two to four points per dollar. But, you know, it takes time. You've got to track it. You've got to, you know, it takes energy. So now I'm I'm really like, I'm going to wait for the really monster bonuses. Like when it hits 100,000 plus, I'm interested. But 10 years ago, you know, I was I was opening up a lot more cards a lot more frequently trying to get points. And you have 15 right now, you said. Somewhere around that. Like, I, I don't <laughs> You lost <keep> track. <laughs> there are some people that like are like, I know exactly how many cards I have. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know the exact number. So someone that has not 12 million points, but let's say 100,000 points. And there's so many ways to spend it today with different programs. Where do you think you can use those points that will take you the furthest? based on yeah. 100,000 points. So I'll tell you the worst. It, well, the worst is like letting them, like closing the card down, not redeeming them and losing them. Uh, the second worst is like using them to get Apple gift cards or any kind of gift card in the, in, you know, in the website of the company. Really? If we assume that those points are airline or hotel points, the best redemptions are going to be, you know, just booking hotels or flights. You can get, decently outsized value often if you are booking more luxurious expensive aspirational things so historically and this for some airlines is still the case you know business class flights might cost 5 to 10 times coach flights but they often need two times the number of points to book mm-hmm. them and so there's a little bit of arbitrage there 
to be clear, if you weren't going to otherwise buy the business class flight, it's a little un unfair, disingenuous to say like, wow, I got this much value out of it. Yes, you did. You got a $10,000 plane ticket for your 100,000 points, but you weren't going to spend you know, uh, $10,000 on that plane ticket. So keep that in mind when you're yeah. thinking about these values. Like, yes, I've seen people get 10 or 15 cents of value for each point, but it wasn't value in the form of something they, they didn't save that much money from their expenses uh, because True. they weren't going to buy a $15,000 flight uh, on Emirates first class. But in general, if you have Amex points or Chase points or Capital One points, the, the best redemption value is going to come from transferring those points to an airline uh, and booking flights through that airline's mileage program versus reimbursing yourself or booking in the Chase Travel Portal or anything like that. But it is going to be more work. So you got to ask yourself, do I want to put in the work and get more value? Do I want to not put in the work and just book in the Travel Portal? Do I want to put in no work and just get cash back? Like That's totally up to you. But the but the people I know and and that are getting the most value out of this are transferring to different um, airlines and hotel groups. And so as an example, we took a family trip to London and Paris last year. We got tickets to Paris for about 65,000 points in business class. Tickets back from London for 40,000 points in business class. So it was about 105,000 points a person. And the flight's at the time we bought them were like seven grand. So a little around seven cents per point. Wow. Now, I wouldn't have necessarily paid that for those flights. Like I'm not, I'm not at a point in my life where I'm buying business class flights with cash. But if you figure you're using a card, I'm using the Amex Gold for dinner, getting four points per dollar. If those four points are worth seven cents, I'm getting 28 cents for every dollar I spend, which is like, almost a third back on every dollar I'm spending. It's kind of cool. Like, I'm pretty stoked. And by the way, flying business class for free is pretty cool. Yeah, to me, it's like even better. Like, even though you don't compare it apples to apples from an expense, you're introducing like a new experience that you never would have done because of, you know, the certain budget that you were limited to if you were just to pay in cash. So I actually love that, that you can just do things that, yeah, you wouldn't have paid for it, but I think people would have certainly you know, enjoyed that new experience of, of going through that. But yeah. And there are a lot of sites I'll, I'll rattle off a few yeah. point.me Rome travel um, seats.ero where you can, for some version of trial free, et cetera, search for award flights and it'll make it a lot easier. And so that's the challenge is you could log into Delta's website and try to book a ticket to London. And it might be, in business class, 500,000 points. And then you could log into Turkish Air's website and book a ticket that's actually on United, but booked through Turkish to London for 40,000 points. So figuring out where to transfer your points and which airline to book on with that, like that is a is the challenge. It's the reason why, you know, I kind of call this like a game and not just a way to do things because yeah. If you just logged into Amex and you saw the 20 transfer partners they have and you don't know which one to transfer to and you pick Delta, in many cases, you're going to get, you know, your your 500,000 points might get you one flight. If you pick Turkish Air, you might get 12 flights for the same number of points. Um, but another day, going to another destination, Turkish might be nothing available and Delta is an amazing deal. 
And so there are some sites that I just like the ones I just mentioned, I can send you the links where it makes it a little easier to say, hey, I'm going to Japan, what are my options? And what's the easiest way to do this so that I get the most value? So when I see these arbitrages, like 1.5, even double arbitrages that you can get specifically from these hotels and planes that you buy or the tickets that you buy, I, I always wonder like, who's the sucker here? Like who, who's losing in this scenario? Is it the airlines losing money in this specific scenario where people are buying with points? Is it the banks? Is it like the credit cards? Or is it everyday consumers that don't buy with points that are actually being upsold to these credit to these tickets? It's a good question. There was actually a piece of legislation in the U.S. that was trying to get to lower the eh, it was very complicated and it didn't end up getting included in a a bill. But the idea was to lower uh, increased competition and ultimately lower the amount merchants had to pay to process credit cards. And so their argument, which is that, you know, all the stores are, are the losers, because if you go to Walmart or Whole Foods or anywhere, even your local, you know, restaurant, and you swipe your credit card, they're all paying 3%. And so, you know, if you paid with cash, they're not. So when you swipe with your credit card, you are costing the merchant more uh, in fees than if you pay with a debit card or cash. That is true. These merchants don't mind because credit cards are so convenient that if I went to a restaurant and they said we're cash only, I just wouldn't go to the restaurant. Like it just, I don't carry cash yeah. and I don't carry my debit card. And for a lot of people keeping money in their bank account to like, it's just, it's harder to manage your checking versus savings, especially there's a whole nother rabbit hole, but like with interest rates as high as they are right now, I want yeah. all my cash in a place earning interest, not in my yeah. checking account. Yeah. But so that's one argument. The other is banks are like, there are a lot of people who are using these points to redeem for gift cards. So if you figure you swipe a credit card and it's a Chase Sapphire, let's say you have a Chase Sapphire preferred. You get three points on dining, two points on travel, and one on everything else. Most people just have that card. So if they go out to uh, you know Walgreens and they buy some prescriptions, they put on that card, they get one point per dollar. And many people just redeem that point for a gift card or an Apple purchase on the website, and they get you know half a cent for that point. Well... They got so they got half a cent for every dollar they spent. So it's like 0.5% return. Well, Chase, you know, the merchant Walgreens is probably paying two point something percent in fees. So for that person, Chase is making a boatload of money because they're getting a much higher amount of that processing fee and they're giving it back, they're giving you nothing. Mm. So in a way, people that are suboptimally doing all of this are certainly creating the financial ability for these programs to, you know, make it possible to get these outsized redemptions. But when you when I transfer my points to Turkish Air and book this United flight, Chase isn't losing out extra because I was able to get a $7,000 flight for 40,000 points, right? Chase is paying Turkish Air the same amount for 40,000 points, whether I redeem it for a $100 flight or a $10,000 flight. Um, and Chase knows how all this works. Like they're not, I don't think they're losing money on any of this. Um, but airlines also know there are seats that are going to go unused. And so how do they make this whole system work? And there's a lot of the reason why a lot of these flights are the best last minute with points is because 
airlines are re- releasing more inventory last minute. So the airlines have a really, really sophisticated load management system that's making sure they're not giving up seats on planes that would otherwise be able to be sold. You're going to have a horrible time trying to get amazing deals on points, booking holiday travel around Christmas or Thanksgiving or New Year's, you know, three months ahead of time, because airlines know that they're going to be able to sell almost all of those seats. Yeah. Whereas if you're trying to book something like the second week of January, where few people are traveling because they all just traveled for the holidays, and you book it the first week of January, where like anything that hasn't sold is unlikely to be sold, you might get the best deal of all time. Yeah, yeah. They seem very sophisticated. So it seems like it's the average consumer that's probably overpaying in a lot of cases if they're not optimizing with these with these points. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you're not getting more than two cents of value every time you swipe your credit card, like you are missing out on opportunity because there are literally, you know, the city double cash card is a 2% cashback card on everything. Mm. So like bare minimum, you could go get the city double cash and get 2% cash back on everything. Uh, and so if you're not getting 2% back, then you're missing out. Uh, but even there, if a processing fee is two point, you know, I accept credit cards for the, all the hacks membership. I pay 2.9% plus I think 30 cents for every transaction. So like even there is enough margin in there for 2%. If someone buys the the spreadsheet that I mentioned and you pay a dollar, I'm going to give up. 2.9 cents, so (laughs) 3 cents plus 30 cents, you know, 33 cents of that transaction I'm giving up. You know, you could maybe argue it'd be better to just make it free, but, you know, I want to make sure people, some people have paid $100 for it. Um, So, but yeah, so there's enough margin for 2% for sure. And anything above 2% back is, you know, you're playing the game and getting your value. And I guess at the end of the day, it's probably Chase or Capital One uh, that are, you're an unprofitable customer for them. But the fact that you're getting these outsized redemptions and going on these amazing vacations is enticing lots of other people to be like, ooh, I want to try that. And the reality is most of them aren't. So Chase kind of wants you to take an epic vacation so you tell your friends. They just don't want your friends to all take the epic vacation too. Yeah, in most cases, they won't. Um, Speaking of hacking credit, so for someone that has a fairly low credit right now, or maybe they just are starting with credit, so probably someone in their early 20s, or maybe someone just had some issues growing, you know, in their 20s and 30s, they need to rebuild their credit. So this is very relevant to you because because of your background with Grove and as as a financial service planning company. What are some of the hacks there? Like, what are some of the big impacts that someone can do to make sure that they can get their credit higher uh, or just build it up? Yeah, I mean, one is anything on your credit report that's not right, you can dispute. So if you have bad credit, it's possible that you have bad credit because some credit reporting agency thinks that you didn't pay a bill that you did. So definitely dispute that. Definitely uh, try to resolve anything you can that is on your credit report negatively impacting you. Um, believe it or not, it was kind of crazy. The story of this this couple that I'll send the link to, you know, the woman in this relationship started with a credit score of 670 and after opening like 15 credit cards ended up at 798. Um, wow. And so part of, you know, the components of your credit score are, you know, 
how how much of your credit are you using? So if regularly, if you have one credit card with a $2,000 limit and you're always spending $2,000 a month, you look like a person who uses all of your credit. Mm. When in reality, if you had $4,000 of credit, you might only use 50%. And if you had 10,000, you might only be using 20%. Someone who only uses 20% of their credit looks a lot more... Uh, you know, appealing because there's not a lot of risk that they're going to use it all and go bankrupt in default. So making sure that, you know, there are hacks like paying off your credit card more regularly, right? If you have a $2,000 limit and you always spend $2,000 a month, well, you could pay your credit card off every week. And it sounds crazy, but then anytime the credit bureaus check your, your account, they're going to say, oh, well, this person's only using $500 of their $2,000. It'll look better. Um, there are some companies, I can't remember the names of all of them, but if you do some quick research where they'll report your rent payments or they'll report um, debit card spending to credit issuers so that you can start to build credit. Um, if you, not every financial, not every credit card company does this and they don't disclose which ones do, but for some, if you have your parents or maybe a friend or a sibling that trusts you, if they add you as an authorized user to their credit card, it will show up on your credit report. Really? So I think my dad did this at one point for me with an American Express. And like all of a sudden there's a card on my credit history with like a $30,000 limit <laughs> and 25 years of history, which like wow. really added to my credit, which was like one card with a much lower limit and a very short history. Interesting. Okay, got he it. He didn't actually even give me the card. So it's not like he he added me, a card got shipped to, to the house, and yeah. he was like, I am not going to give you this card. You can't spend money on this card, but it might help your credit. Mm. Yeah, interesting. That's very useful, though. Um, I want to dig into money a little bit more. So you were featured in one of these documentaries. I forgot what it was called. Playing uh, with Fire. Playing with Fire, right. And it's all about the the fire movement. So for people that can you actually describe a little bit more about that? Cause I think a lot of people know about it, but I'm always shocked that people haven't really heard about it. And um, I don't know if you've also heard about like the different types of fire movements, oh, yeah. like the lean fire. fire. I'd love to just dig into that a little bit more. Yeah. So one of the things that happened in my career, which we might have to continue another day is like, I just tried a bunch of jobs and they weren't fulfilling and I didn't love doing them. And so I had this attitude of, man, I don't want to just work for 50 years doing something that I don't enjoy. So I aggressively started saving. Part of the whole points game was like, I can't spend money on travel, but I want to travel. So this was an outlet. So aggressively saving with a goal of like not needing to rely on a job to make money because I hadn't found a job yet that I loved. Turns out that I eventually did, and I'm very happy to host podcasts for a living. It's amazing. But before that, I didn't know what was possible. And so I aggressively saved. And then I realized there's an entire community uh, and even a movement called the FIRE movement, which is financial independence, retire early. And I kind of, I guess because I had a, a bit of an atypical path into FIRE, which was I didn't find FIRE and you know want to do it. But I, I kind of started doing it and found out it was there. I got to meet a bunch of interesting people as part of this documentary. And there's a lot of versions of it. There's like lean fire, coastal fire, fat fire. At the end of the day, it's like, how aggressive do you want to be? And how willing are you to sacrifice 
And so there are people who are like, I'm going to make a rake and I'm going to wash my tin foil and reuse it. And then there's people that are like, no, 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 I want fat fire. Like I want to fly private jets. I just don't want to have to work. So I need to save a hundred million dollars. Like there's a spectrum of it, but the general premise is working and saving and saving enough that you're not beholden to any particular job. Mm. I think the retire early is maybe op- it, it, for me, it's personally optional. Like I am working right now, but I'm at a place where I have enough money saved that I can work on something I love. And, you know, the podcast didn't always make money, you know, is you could choose the career you want. So I, I don't think you have to retire and sit on a beach and do nothing. And for most people, I think even if you had no job, you'd find something exciting. And if you're really excited about it, it'll probably turn into something that somehow, you know, you make money from, but I do believe that there's a lot of value from saving enough money that you have the flexibility to do what you want um, with your time, your career, your profession. How do people calculate that? Like, what are the steps involved? What's the first steps to really involve to calculate that number for you? I think step one is you got to figure out how much money you need to live. And it's not how much money you spend now. It's like, how much money could you live on? So I mentioned I use Copilot, like categorize all my transactions. I have a really good sense of how much I spend. You don't have to use it to have a budget and, you know, organize like that. But I do know how much we spend. And I could go through and be like, well, if we really needed to cut costs, we could drop this. We could drop this. So once you have that number, then the question is, how much money do you need to have so that the returns from that money cover your expenses? In the fire movement, the the rule is the 4% rule, and it's based on a ton of research um, that I think, you know, you could debate endlessly because no one really knows what the future of the stock market or anything it will be. Uh, Right now, you can earn more than 4% on your money just by investing in treasury bonds or even a high yield savings account. But typically and historically, if someone had an amount of money and 4% of that amount of money covered their daily expenses, they could live off the returns for the rest of their life. Now, keep in mind, that doesn't mean you need to have, if the market doesn't grow that year, you'd subtract from the principal and you'd withdraw from the account. uh, And, and, you know, it would go down. And by the time you die, the balance is greater than zero. It doesn't mean that the balance will be what you started at, um, but the balance can go down. If you want to be safe, you could use the 3% rule, right? You could say, I need to live on 3%, which basically means the 4% rule would just say you need 25 times, uh, you know, whatever you spend in a year to be comfortable being financially independent. There's so many factors that go into this, right? Social security, am I going to make any money during my retirement? So I don't have my own personal number, but I think it's probably somewhere time, you know, like, if I can cover my, if I have 10 times, that's probably enough to feel financially independent for enough years to figure out what it really means. 90% of the people I've met who've hit financial independence and quit their jobs within three years are making money doing something they love. So if you really just need enough money to cover yourself for three or four years, well, you don't need 25 times your annual spending. You need three or four times your annual spending. So um, it's a very personal number. Yeah, yeah. I think twenty-five expenses. That's 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 the one of the equations. I think another one. Well, just easy. Like another one that people have just brought up. If it's easier for some people, is just to take your annual expense and divide it by four percent. 
or three percent yeah. or five percent, depending on what that is for you. Uh, and that's like a easy way to to get that number. But yeah, I agree with you. Like this idea of retiring, I don't know when we decided that sixty five had to be the retire number. It's kind of a, a almost like a lie that we've been told, especially in this modern day and age. So, but yeah, whoever wants to retire early, I guess is is that's kind of the idea, I guess, right? Yeah. Um, just to close it off, I, I want to go into this idea of applying this fire rule and dealing with relationships, right? So I don't know, you know, you're married now, you have kids now, but when you guys were first dating, and I deal with this as well, like I'm a big saver, I don't really like to spend things that I don't really care about, very minimalistic, but that can be construed as frugal, which can certainly have a negative perception, especially when you're dating and they don't really know kind of the, the path that you're on. So how did you personally deal with that? And what's like the conversation that people can have around this idea of fire moving and saving with their partners? So my wife and I met when I, we were in college in 2004. So it's been almost 20 years. So I don't think my advice is necessarily going to be that helpful because, uh, you know, I, I don't even remember. I don't even know if I knew a lot about uh, fire or saving or anything back then. But what I will say is I have a lot of friends who are dating again now for the second time. They've maybe gotten divorced or ended a really long relationship. And the thing that seems to be a consistent theme is much earlier aligning on big value things, whether it's kids, whether it's saving and money, whether it's religion and and kind of jumping into those things early because they all seem to be things that, you know, can create tension and challenges later. So, yeah, I think my advice to people is if, if it's really important for you to save money, like put that like just own that and say, hey, you know, hey, for a first date, let's go on a hike. And on the hike, talk about, hey, isn't it crazy that it feels like in this dating culture, everyone always feels like they have to go out for dinner, go out and have drinks and spend $300 just to get to know someone. If you want to go on four dates uh, a month, you're going to spend over $1,000 dating. That's crazy. And if the other person is like, no, I would like someone to buy me, you know, like I want to do that. You're like, oh, like we, we're not aligned on this thing. And so I, I would just own your values and not try to, you know, see how they show up months down the road. Uh, because chances are, and I don't have any science to explain this, but chances, like my belief is that you're going to do really well in a relationship where a lot of your core values are aligned. You don't have to be the same person. You don't have to love the same sports activities. But some of these big core values, like I don't like, you know, I like to be really, frugal is not even the right word. It's just like thoughtful with money. Like, Someone once asked me if I was frugal or cheap. And I was like, yeah, I think so. And they're like, you have an iPhone. Like if you were cheap, you would have an Android phone because like your iPhone costs a lot more than a phone that has the same feature set. So like I just choose where I value my money. And when it comes to having a phone, I guess I value the phone enough to spend iPhone level dollars on it. Uh, sure, I'm going to find a way to go, tr you know, find the promo where I can trade in the old iPhone and get $800 off because like once a year, it seems like every carrier does a deal like that. But I think you get the point. So whatever those important values are to your life, I would just surface them earlier. Like, I know it's like scary to 
limit yourself early on in, in dating. And I say this as someone who has zero experience in the last two decades doing it. <laughs> uh, yeah. But well, it's I working. Think, you're, I mean, yeah. clearly it's working so far. So, so I don't know. That's my advice. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not science, but the biggest reasons for divorce, I think even to this day is, is money. It's like the, the misalignment of values around money. So, I mean, it's, it just seems that people are not having these difficult conversations. And, and I think the, the advice that you're bringing is really helpful around this. Uh, just to kind of dig deeper, joint accounts. When does it make sense? Do you think it makes sense at all? How does it work? And do you think people should have their own bank accounts as well? I think I'm going to punt on this one, uh, both in the interest of time and because I, I've heard... I've heard, I've heard enough stories to know that like both of them work. So like the way we do it, we just have one account, all of the, you know, everything's transparent. I have friends and I've talked to people who are like, if you listen to Ramit Sethi has a show called I will teach you to be rich on a podcast, he interviews couples. It works to have two bank accounts. It totally works. So there's not an actual answer that is the definitive. There's no right answer. It's more about making sure that if you're someone who's really insecure about money and you know you don't want to share, but you're dating someone who wants to be on the same page every minute, you're going to need to share. Like It's just only going to work that way. So I think you need to make sure you're doing something that works for both of you. But I think either can work. Uh, we choose to just have joint accounts and, and everyone has access to everything. Perfect, perfect. I just realized the time as well. I know you got to go. So, no, I appreciate you having on. Uh, this is super insightful, super, uh, I mean, this is very refreshing as well, I would say, based on the content that we have. So, I'm going to link all the links that people have below. Is there anything else that you want to just pitch people, like anything that you want to share that would be useful for people to, to dig further before you go? No, there's one topic that if we had more time, I would love to go down a rabbit hole on. And it's this concept of, kind of not necessarily optimizing for more money and really optimizing for, you know, more fulfillment in life. Um, and I think it's something that we get wrong. And it's certainly something that I got wrong a lot. And so I did this interview that was one of the more impactful ones I've ever had on my show. Uh, episode 91 uh, by a guy named Bill Perkins, who wrote a book called Die With Zero. So yeah, that's a topic it. that I wish we had more time to dig into. Yeah. But again, I have a whole podcast called All The Hacks. If you want to optimize travel, life, money, anything, there's probably, you know, a dozen episodes on any of the areas that you want to spend time improving and, and go check it out. Perfect. Just don't stay up until 4 a.m. like I did. So, <laughs> content is If you don't have anything in the morning, why not? Why not? Why not? All right, Chris. Thanks so much for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me.